The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Ident. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 35 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 24th of March, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios somewhere in Southern California. On this episode of Squawk Ident, I'm joined by a young aviator that I flew with a handful of times while we were both working at an airline we here at Squawk Ident called Sandpiper Regional. We explore his journey that starts out from a high school aviation program in Wisconsin to an accredited aviation college in Daytona Beach, Florida. He is a surf rider and a world traveler and a YouTube channel producer. We will explore the journey that has taken him to the left seat of an Embraer 145. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show right after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. I want to take this time to give a very special thank you to Captain Luca for a spectacular show on episode 34. We discussed all kinds of things, including his current situation while living and flying out of northern Italy. He has been on lockdown now for over two weeks, and we absolutely appreciate uh, him spending the time with us and giving us a little bit of insight of how all of this COVID-19 pandemic has affected him and his family and his fellow aviators flying in and out of Northern Italy. And that was a wonderful show where we were joined with our co-host, Rob D. and Roger. So again, a big special thank you to them all. Today's guest is a graduate from the Wisconsin Aviation Academy, where he earned his private pilot license at the age of 17. He has a Bachelor's of Science in Aeronautical Sciences from Emory-Riddle Aeronautical University of Daytona Beach. He is a certified flight instructor, an avid surfer, a hurricane rock star, a guitar tickler, 
a world traveler, a devoted husband and father to the most beautiful one-year-old, a co-host with his wife Shaylin of a travel YouTube channel called Intrepid, and at present, an Embraer captain at the airline we here at Squawk Ident refer to as Sandpiper Regional. All the way from his New Smyrna Beach, Florida home, help me in welcoming to Squawk Ident, Captain Adam Krause. Captain, how the hell are you? Doing good, man. Doing good, doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing good. You know, it, this has been a crazy time. You know, with all the news and the airlines, uh, just information is bombarding our inboxes from our respective airlines about how we're going to cope with all this economic downturn, how we're dealing with, you know, being staying at home, how we're dealing with isolating ourselves from social distancing, these terms that we've really not heard of before and had to uh, really dive into. And here we are doing all these things, uh, running through the motions of protecting our families, protecting ourselves. But yet, here we still are on the flight line during all of this. And I know you've had a little bit of vacation time. You Man, you timed this pretty good. You just got back from Puerto Rico with your family on a well-deserved vacation. Um, unfortunately, it was, was uh, cut a little short. You didn't get a chance to, to get it all at, uh, in there. You know, the surfing kind of lacked there. I know you, you were really looking forward to that. But how was it? How was that vacation at the beginning of all this going on? Was it still a, a wonderful experience for you? Yeah, man, everything worked out good. Uh, uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head with uh, me uh, timing this vacation all right, though. I had a lot of uh, uh, time off. I, I got a lot of trips dropped, so I've kind of managed to avoid a lot of this uh, COVID-19 uh, craziness that's been going on. I've been uh, cruising the pilot group chats, though, and, and seeing uh, some of the stuff that's going on or hearing from my wife, from the pilot wives uh, perspective. Uh, but besides all of that, we were uh, tucked away on an island, kind of not hearing too much about it. Uh, we were down in Puerto Rico a good week. Um, we started uh, at the National Rainforest, the only rainforest in the United States, uh, actually. Uh, and then we made our way over to the West Coast, where I was hoping to do some surfing. But unfortunately, towards the end of our trip, they started closing beaches. Uh, the, the governor down there was taking uh, the virus very seriously, although there were only seven uh, accounts of the virus on the island. Uh, that poor island has been hit with so many problems recently between earthquakes, hurricanes, and what have you. I think that governor just didn't want to take any chances, which is totally understandable. But uh, yeah, man, we had a house on the beach, though, so they couldn't kick us off our own private beach. <laughs> nice. So you, you ended up, was it a, an Airbnb that you were able to manage? It was, yeah. So the first one, uh, we actually stayed at two Airbnbs. The first one was a house on a farm uh, just outside of El Yunque, the National Rainforest. Uh, and then the second one uh, was uh, right on the beach in uh, Rincon, uh, which is a pretty popular uh, surf destination. You'll see a lot of, uh, a lot of good surf around there. <laughs> yeah. So here you are, you're, you're kind of watching what's going on in the world while you're on vacation. Were you worried about not getting back? You know, it's funny you say that. Uh, we were 
we only stayed one day over near the rainforest. Uh, and if for people that aren't familiar, the rainforest is on the total opposite side of the island of where uh, Rincon is. Uh, so we were on a three-hour drive, uh, and my wife's mom called us uh, very concerned. Uh, almost, and she didn't say it, but almost implying, like, I want you guys to come back right now. Because mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm afraid that they're going to shut down all air travel and you guys aren't going to get back. Uh, but, uh, to sum up the story short, um, essentially we ended up just telling her, you know, we're going to keep an eye on things. Uh, and if it looks like they're going to shut down anything down, a lot of times they usually give a good hint at least 24 hours in advance from what I've seen so far with a lot of the stuff that's gone on. Um, then we would get on a plane and come back. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it was pretty crazy down well, there. You, you timed it just right, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. So, you know, here on Squawk Ident, I understand that you have been listening for quite some time to the podcast, and I just want to say thank you for all your support. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that uh, you've been a part of going back and forth with me on social media and, you know, with uh, messages and, and, and giving me encouragement to keep doing this. And I just want to say thank you right now while we, while we have this yeah, opportunity. Man. Uh, but today I wanted yeah, to talk yeah. to you about this journey of yours, you know, this uh, this aviator's journey, how you got started. And I remember from when we flew together last, which was uh, quite a, a bit ago, was it a few years ago, three, four years ago, was it? Yeah, three, yeah, a little over three years ago, yeah. Yeah, and you know, we, we kind of, as we always do as aviators, you know, you get into the to the cockpit and you, you try to figure out a little bit about the person next to you. And, and our first experience together, you were reminding me was one of your first flights actually in the jet during what they call initial operating experience. Do you remember that, uh, that time frame? Oh yeah. Very, very, uh, uh, Vividly, yeah, yeah. Your your trip was even more memorable than the first one, just because we actually uh, got a chance on some longer overnights to go out and uh, get to know each other a little more on a personal level. Um, as you know, too, some certain pilots they just connect better with each other than others sometimes, and and what have you. But yeah, we had a really good time. Uh, that was a good uh, good way to start the uh, the crew environment uh, by flying with you. Well, thank you for saying that. That was awesome. Yeah, I I remember it as well. It was, uh, you know. Didn't we do Chicago to, I think it yeah, was Nashville. Nashville was it? I think it was, uh, that, yeah, that was my line check. Yeah. Oh, that was, uh, that was like one of the final It was the flights. only time I ever flew any weather too. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to get into a little bit of that a little later in the show, but let's start at the beginning. You know, here you are, uh, you know, a young boy in school and were you just always interested in aviation or was this sparked by something else? Yeah, so it was uh, growing up, uh, my dad uh, actually was in the Navy, he flew F-18s, uh, and it was based in Lemoore, California. So I grew up on the base there, uh, listening to the F-18s whiz over as a young young child. I don't have a lot of memories out there, as I was just kind of too young to, to remember. Uh, and then eventually my dad got out and went into the airlines, one of the uh, uh, major air, air carriers here in the United States. Um, and I grew up the rest of my life in Wisconsin. Um, and essentially sophomore year of high school, I actually had a teacher, uh, make us all write a paper on what we wanted to do for a living. And like most sophomores in high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was just looking for an easy way to get the paper done. So I was like, oh, well, I'll just be an airline pilot. Cause that's what my dad does. So I can just, you know, mooch off him for information. Nice. <laughs> 
yeah, my dad was never too pushy with aviation with any of me or my three other brothers. Uh, it was honestly, it was me doing the research on that paper that really uh, uh, kind of lit a little little bit of a fire, I guess you could say. Um, it wasn't till uh, I, I came to a crossroads sophomore year, same time frame. Uh, where I wasn't uh, really enjoying playing hockey too much for the local team. So my mom said, you got to pick something else. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you're not going to just sit at home. So uh, that was when I kind of Googled and found this company uh, called Wisconsin Aviation Academy. Uh, and then I later pursued that. Yeah. So tell me about this Wisconsin Wisconsin Aviation Academy. You're relatively young, still in high school, sophomore year, you said. And was this program yeah, yeah. something that they were offering to the high school students or was it something else? Yeah, it was a pretty uh, uh, tight-knit little program. They they allowed uh, eight students, I believe it was eight, uh, don't quote me on that, but at the time, I think it was about eight students a year uh, were accepted, and essentially the local air show at a regional airport uh, funded a, a lot of our flight training, a lot of those eight students' flight training every year. Um, Essentially, we only paid 50% of uh, my private pilot's license. Wow. Uh, some kids more. It was based off the parents' income. So essentially, it could be 50% of all the way upwards of 70% mm. um, that they would cover. Uh, so it was not only a, a great asset to me because it's you know real-world experience. It's something that I eventually went on to do. Uh, but also getting that private pilot's license, as you know, it's one of the more expensive uh, ratings that we get as aviators. Uh, right in the beginning. So that's definitely one you want the financial support for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that uh, program, was it like a year-long program? How long did that take? So it was part 61. So it was pretty much uh, personal, uh, you know, self-paced. Uh, mm-hmm. However however much you could get out there, uh, you could get it done. It took me a year um, as I was juggling uh, sports with school, my regular high school uh, academics, and then uh, going out there flying once uh, to three times a week sometimes. Um, eventually, when I went on to my uh, college career, obviously that kind of picked up the flying. But uh, back then, I still kind of, even going through private, still was kind of one of those, you know, I don't know if I'm going to do this the rest of my life, but it was, uh, um, it hadn't quite hit yet uh, how much I truly love it uh, like today. And were there many kids in your high school that were taking flying lessons or were you the only one? I was the only one that I knew of. Uh, A lot of these kids uh, actually uh, commuted in from like other surrounding high schools and cities. Uh, At the time, I was uh, one of two people that were uh, doing it uh, from my specific high school. Um, And uh, that other... uh, uh, boy, I've I sent, I've, I've lost contact with him. I, I haven't seen if he ever went on to the airlines or anything. Um, but yeah, so a lot of, uh, it was a very, like I said, tight knit community, uh, out there at the local airport. And you said you're, uh, you have three brothers. Are they all in aviation as well? Uh, so my older brother's a flight instructor. Um, uh, he's, uh, 31 now. Uh, he kind of get into it a little late. Uh, I convinced him to actually to get in, into it. He was a uh, full-time uh, uh, military, and then he uh, went to the uh, Florida National Guard uh, on the side and then pursued aviation full-time. Uh, so he's a little bit behind me as far as uh, the track goes. But uh, just when he was getting ready to come to the airlines, man, they uh, they stopped the door. They closed the doors, unfortunately. Luckily, though, he's pretty senior at his flight instructor job, so I don't think he'll be losing that uh, position as of now. 
And then the bro- my youngest brother uh, actually just started his uh, – he's, uh, he's just getting ready to finish his private pilot's license. He's uh, 17 – or 18, and he's in high school as well right now. Mm-hmm. And my other brother is not a pilot. <clears throat> what, he did he uh, dabble in it a little bit. Uh, he's actually in business and marketing. Yeah, ah. he's he's big into sports. I think he wants to go into something with like golf or I, I'm not quite sure yet. He's he's he tends to surprise me sometimes. Yeah, smart man, I guess. Yeah, right. the one that the one that's not in aviation. <laughs> right, right now, given the current conditions. <laughs> Were you? When did you move to Florida? Uh, right after I graduated, uh, I spent two more months in the summer uh, in Wisconsin, and then I moved down uh, in August of 2012. Uh, and then that's when I started uh, pursuing the the aviation a lot more heavily with doing working towards a degree program as well as flying. Did the whole family move there, or was it just you for school? Just me at the time, man. Yeah, I actually. Uh, it's funny, funny story. I chose Embry Riddle not necessarily because it's pretty well known. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to get out of Wisconsin in the cold, and I'd always skateboarded and snowboarded and what have you. And uh, I told my mom when I was younger, I'm like, I'm moving and I'm going to some beach town. I don't know what I'm going to do there or what have you. But so when I eventually picked aviation, I just said, well, I guess I'll go to New Smyrna Beach. My family's always vacation there. Uh, and I was like, all right, I'll just go to the closest aviation school that's there. And I just so happened to be Embry Riddle at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I moved down, uh, like most kids, I was kind of restricted financially. Uh, with what I could do. So I ended up uh, doing a, a, a transfer program that uh, partnership that Daytona State had with uh, Emory Riddle, which is also in Daytona Beach. They're literally right across the street from each other, mm. um, where they allow you to do your general education requirements at Daytona State, which is significantly cheaper, even with out-of-state tuition, it was significantly cheaper, and then transfer into Emory Riddle. So I did a semester or, or a year and a half at Daytona State Mm-hmm. Uh, and then finished it out at every riddle with the degree. And by doing that, I actually did the same thing. Um, when I went to, I went to a community college that had a transfer program and, you know, I got all like, just like what you did, you got all your general aviation education out of the way. And then I transferred into a state university in San Francisco. And, uh, it was great because I only had to do like two years of the uh, graduate program or the undergrad program. And uh, yeah, I mean, talk about saving money and time and, and yeah, it's a really smart way to go. Absolutely. Think, especially now with the cost of tuition that skyrocketed, even from when I did it. Um, so yeah, that is a, Absolutely. a great way to, to go about that. And Emory Riddle, can you tell me a little bit about that program? Is So you're, you're attending college classes at the same time you're taking an academic, uh, aviation academic program. Is that how it works? Yeah. The best way I could generalize it. And I used to, uh, when people would ask me, this is kind of what I would tell them. It's almost like doing a degree program, but being on the baseball team or being on the football team, uh, after school, you got to do your homework. Plus you got to go fly and, and work at all, uh, work on all of that as well. Um, essentially I'd fly three to four times a week, uh, every week, depending on uh, aircraft availability, they, they guaranteed you three times a week though, that you would be doing some type of flight tra- training, whether it be a ground lesson, a flight or a sim. Mm. Uh, and yeah, it was, at times it was kind of hard to, to, to manage, but at the same time, a lot of those general education <laughs> classes, believe it or not, like the maths and physics and stuff that I banged out beforehand before I even went there, 
those were the higher workload classes. When I went to Embry-Riddle, it was way more airline focused. We talked about aerodynamics, a lot of stuff I was interested in. So it was a little easier to manage, uh, kind of having been familiar with the subjects and, uh, and, and at least having more of a passion for the subjects. Uh, it made it easier to stu- go home and study and, you know, put uh, surfing to the side sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So the aeronautical sciences program, what does that entail? Are you, you know, obviously you're going to be doing things like uh, physics and and you know, aeronautical engineering kind of program. But what are some of the classes that you that you had to take and, and learn? Yeah, so uh, we took uh, essentially how I describe it to people. It's almost like all, um, if you're in the airlines, the best way I can describe it is this essentially like basic in-doc training, uh, a lot of those classes. Uh, we talked. To, we had a class just on jet turbines. We had a class on jet, uh, it was called jet transport systems. And essentially uh, in that class, we only talked about the 747 and we learned all of, it was almost like taking a type rating ground school. Uh, if, if there was no SIM involved, uh, we learned all the systems system by system. And we had a test on each system at the end. Uh, we learned about like the eight fuel tanks and the transfer ejector pumps and what have you. Um, in the turbines class, we learned about all the, the, the parts of the engine and what have you, uh, and aerodynamics, uh, that's kind of self-explanatory. We learned about aerodynamics, uh, the, actually the most helpful class, um, that I uh, had was called airline operations. And it was essentially a general overview of what to expect when you get to the airlines. So I had a degree in aeronautical science with an emphasis on airline operations where some other uh, students that were maybe in the ROTC program, they would have the military, uh, focus track, uh, where they took uh, a lot of the military core classes where my class, uh, one of the required classes for my specific part of that degree was airline operations. And it was taught, uh, by an ex uh, legacy airlines uh, uh, captain and uh, who had lost his medical kind of came back and I have to tell you that was the most helpful class we learned about jump seat etiquette we learned about wow. how you should carry yourself in the airport uh, with uh, uniform standards everything um, the first day of class I'll just tell you this little story to kind of give you some insight first day of class he put a bunch of candy into a bucket and Essentially, there was kind of two of each candy, and he handed it around the room. He said, everybody pick the one you want. And uh, naturally, uh, I picked the Tootsie Roll. I like Tootsie Rolls um, by the time it got to me. And then at the end, uh, after it went up and down all the rows in class, he said, raise your hand if you got what you wanted. And I'm not kidding. I I would say about 75% to 80% of the class got what they wanted. And he said, that's how bidding works at the airlines. Oh, that's a genius. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it's funny, it does work out that way. I'm a pretty junior captain right now, just to kind of bring it back to present day. I'm a pretty junior captain uh, in my base, but uh, as I am still technically a line holder, and, and just this last month, I got uh, my third choice. Um, so it's pretty wow. amazing uh, how, how that uh, kind of uh, those odds, everybody wants something different was his point uh, in that yeah. uh, class. Uh, but yeah, that was a really helpful class. So it, it, it essentially it prepared me for in-doc training. I already knew that there was 14 stages in a jet engine, uh, all of that kind of stuff when I came into the airline environment where a lot of people come into that blindly if they hadn't studied jet engines or stuff like that before. Yeah. I wouldn't say I came in smarter than anybody else. It just it it, it was kind of a, a more of a review for me when I came to 
my first uh, airline job. Yeah, sounds like your academics uh, really did make about. a huge difference in terms of getting you prepared for what was going to be required of you and expected of you um, at your first you know, airline job, part 121 operator. So, man, my hat's off to that program. I, I didn't realize how in-depth those programs were. You know, you think, well, okay, they're, they're college-level classes and they're teaching you about you know, chord lines and angle of attack and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But, but really it's, yeah. it's, uh, it sounds like a very tremendous, um, program that will prepare you for this career field, uh, focused on the things that you can't really learn from a book unless, you know, you're an no avid doubt. reader yeah. of, of people's personal accounts, but yeah, jump seat etiquette in a, in a classroom environment. That's yeah. great. Yeah. 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 Well, it's very important too. People don't realize that (laughs) it's the unwritten rules of jump seating. (laughs) Yeah. There's so, I mean, I've, I've had a couple early shows in this, uh, Squawk Ident, uh, podcast program that where we talk about, uh, the nightmares of jump seating and, and commuting and, and the etiquette that is often overlooked or forgotten sometimes with the more senior pilots that have been doing this a long time. I'll be in your jump seat. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you yeah. mean you're asking right. if you can be in the jump seat? Yeah. 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 So, and I'm sure you've had quite a few of those instances as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. here you are, you graduate from Emory-Riddle and you were you immediately employed as a flight instructor? How did that transition go for you? Yeah, I actually my junior year, uh I was accepted into uh what at the time you had to actually apply an interview to get into the program, but essentially it was like a fast track CFI program. You go zero to hero uh with your CFI and CFII uh in 2 months. And uh, so I did that over the summer. And at the end, it was a guaranteed interview. It wasn't a guaranteed job, but 95% of us, it led to a a positive outcome uh, with a job with the university. Now, this was in a time uh, different than, unfortunately, today, where everybody's pretty much getting hired as far as, uh, um, you know, if you couldn't get hired somewhere else, you'd get hired somewhere else, <laughs> whatever, or at your main, you know, choice, you get hired somewhere else. Uh, so luckily for me, I got hired at my main choice. Um, I, uh, uh, worked for about a year and a half there. As soon as I hit my time, man, I was, uh, starting at, uh, my first regional. Um, I was, uh, I, I truly enjoyed flight instructing, uh, but man, what is I ready to get behind the controls of the jet? That's for sure. So, you know, there you were, you were flight instructing for Emory Riddle. Did you have any challenging experiences while you were flight instructing or even while you were uh, getting your flight instruction at Emory-Riddle, like uh, any events that really kind of stand out in your history of of aviation and learning? Uh, Yeah, so... um... Of course, everybody kind of has their ups and downs uh, in aviation. Uh, luckily, uh, for me, a lot of my downs uh, were at the beginning portion, and towards the end, uh, I was a little more victorious uh, as far as check ride events go. Uh, essentially, when I started instructing, though, Embry Riddle has a very um, strict set of standards. Um, uh, and I'm not trying to say like, oh, more so than others and, and what have you, like they're better than other schools or what have you. Uh, but their standards are so strict that you almost you got to really study your FOM and stuff so you don't get yourself into trouble uh, as far as company rules go, not just FAA rules. Uh, and there was one night uh, where I had uh, 
I, I always taught nights. I taught primarily instruments. My, my student and I uh, had flown up from uh, Daytona Beach to Savannah, Georgia. We said we were going to get food, uh, and as soon as we got there, uh, we had skipped dinner at the time. We got there about uh, 9 p.m. We landed, fueled up uh, so that we could just get out of there as soon as we got back to the airplane. Uh, and uh, when we got inside the FBO, they had told us that they were going to be closing in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so at this time, uh, we had already ordered food at one of the restaurants outside because we knew it was going to be tight with the timing. I had thought they closed at 10, but they really closed at 9.30. So here I am with a company airplane out of that, I guess what you would call an outstation in our airline environment. Um, and I knew I had to get back. So it was either skip lunch or figure something out, um, or excuse me, skip dinner, uh, or figure something out. Uh, and essentially I ended up calling, believe it or not, my wife's, uh, uh, uncle who works at Gulfstream there in Savannah. And I said, Hey man, I got 20 minutes. I, I hate to put this on you, but I know you live close. Is there any way you could pick us up and take us to, this restaurant where we had ordered food from and get us back to the airport in, in less than 20 minutes. And he's, and he hung up the phone. He goes, I'll be right there and hung up the phone. Oh, nice. So we're kind of taking a big, uh, yeah, we're kind of taking a big gamble that this, this FBO is going to close the doors on us and we're not going to be able to get to our airplane. I'm going to have to call my company and tell them why I'm stranded in Savannah <laughs> without the keys to my airplane. Uh, or I had the keys, but I'm not able to access the airplane. Uh, Long story short, we eventually, you know, we made it and made it back, but it was kind of a lesson learned to maybe plan that kind of stuff out a little better. Uh, but I didn't want to, uh, you know, have my student miss out on that opportunity. A lot of these students coming up that first, you know, those cross countries are very meaningful to them. We always we always take them out to dinner. That's just kind of like a rite of passage thing. Uh, at least it was at the school I taught at. Uh, so I didn't want to make him skip his, you know, his nice $400 hamburger. There you go. <laughs> and you made it back just in time and able to get access to the aircraft and, and all was well. And that was really cool. A family member just jumping yeah. in the car and, and coming and picking you up and yeah. being a student. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. So, you know, here you are, you, you instructed for, you said about a year little over a year? Yeah, just a little over a year. Did you have any kind of preferential hiring programs through the university that you went to to get on to the airlines, or did you just have to get your 1,500 hours, uh, your minimum requirement for the ATP before you can start applying? Yeah, so there was a lot of avenues starting to uh, make their way uh, into the aviation industry. This is at a time where uh, the airlines were just starting to ramp up again uh, the, at the time Endeavor had announced their bonus program, which is, they were the first of a lot of the regionals from what I, if my memory serves me right, uh, that, that offered $60,000 a year, including the bonuses. Um, if we're talking about that, uh, for a regional airline pilot, that was unheard of at the time. I remember my, that same professor that handed out the candy, uh, he came in the class at, with a printed out article and he said, you guys are never going to believe this. This is history is being made right now. Um, and he said, Endeavor Airlines is offering, uh, you know, a certain amount of money, what have you. Uh, and it's just it was kind of unprecedented at the time. Uh, so a lot of these uh, cadet programs that are available to students today and stuff like that, that was a lot of uh, all kind of getting set up at the time, too. So I, I chose to, to stay away from those and just kind of wait and see, you know, who was going to be the best at the time that I was getting ready to go. Um, 
and I actually, uh, my ultimate decision, I have applied to three airlines. Uh, I interviewed with all of them, and my ultimate decision was to go with the one that had four bases that were all commutable from where I commute from. Um, that was my my biggest reason. All of them were pr- offering pretty similar pay and bonus structure and what have you. Uh, so that was the big thing that kind of uh, drew me to that. So, yeah, I just got my, uh, at, at, believe it or not, uh, with the four-year degree program in, avia- or in aviation science, uh, I was able to go to the airlines with 1,000 hours. And of that 1,000, you're allowed to use 100 sim time as well. So I actually went to the airlines with 906 hours of flight time. Oh, wow. Yeah, and the, the other 90. And you were able to, uh, to get a restricted ATP. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and tell us a little bit about yep. this restricted ATP. I, most people, I think, that are in aviation or, or studying to be in aviation, and they're starting to do their homework for a career path here. Uh, I'm sure that they know about it. But for those of our listeners that may not be airline pilot goal oriented, they might not understand what a restricted ATP is versus a regular ATP. Can you give us a little bit of insight on that? Yeah. So essentially, um, the restricted ATP. Uh, uh, essentially restricts you from being a captain. Uh, it does not restrict you, however, from going to the airlines uh, and flying a jet. Uh, what a lot of people don't understand, too, if they're just getting started, obviously there's so many things in aviation that you got to think about. But the the biggest thing that I would say is to get 500 hours of flight time. Let's say you are instructing; that tends to be the most, excuse me, the the most uh, popular route as far as building flight time. I know there's a lot of other avenues you can take as well. They're just a little harder to come by. Um, uh, but, uh, 500 hours though, the difference between a thousand hours of flight time and 1500 hours of flight time, that's a lot of time and seniority even, uh, at the airlines, um, that if you're gung ho, you know, you're going to be an airline pilot, I would definitely recommend going to a four year aviation and doing an aviation program because that 500 hours is going to save you a lot of time, effort and money down the road. Not to mention you might have a six months to a year seniority on somebody else or other candidates that you wouldn't necessarily have had you not gone that route. And seniority in this industry is absolutely everything. Exactly. If you have seniority, exactly. you, I mean, one number could be the difference between an upgrade. It could be the difference between a line holder versus reserve holder. And we're not just talking sometimes months. Sometimes it could be the difference of years. So getting in, obviously you need to be ready. And, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a no-brainer. You've got to be ready. You've got to be trained, well-trained, well-prepared to get into an airline environment. Once you have that, you know, if you can hold out and you go, well, you know, skip a class or two. It's not going to make a big deal. It absolutely could make a huge deal. So yeah, very good sage advice to get in as soon as you can, when you can, because getting in the door is probably the hardest challenge at the beginning. And you mentioned that you applied at three airlines and, and how did you make the decision to go where you went. Yeah, so the, the biggest one, as I said before, was the, the 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 bases. All of the bases were commutable. So no matter what happened on indoc day, as far as my base assignment, I knew that I was going to be able to commute to you know whatever base that was. Uh, and for me, that was most important. Did you tell the others thanks but no thanks, or how did that? I mean, because you interviewed with all three, how did that progression yeah. work? Yeah, so I I actually the first one I interviewed with um was an airline 
out of Atlanta at the time uh, was one of their bases. Uh, and that was the main reason I, I knew I was going to be commuting from Florida. So I was looking, you know, for anything in the Southeast. Um, and this airline is called Express Jet, a former ASA at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had uh, interviewed with them. It was kind of like a, uh, almost like a, an interview slash like mentorship program that they were offering. So it was a really relaxed interview. It wasn't like my other two interviews. They just, they had come, they actually had come to Amber Riddle and said, anybody that wants to come interview, you can interview with us. And then at the end, we'll give you a debrief and let you know how you did how you can improve. Uh, it was really a great program that they offered. I, I don't even remember what they called it, to be honest with you. Um, but uh, it, 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 it was a great opportunity because I realized how many mistakes I made um, and what I needed to polish up. They gave me references to websites I could go for more interview prep practice. Uh, and then I later went on to interview with uh, two other airlines uh, which essentially the one I ended up picking was the one I interviewed second. And then the third one I, I showed up to, even though I kind of knew I wanted to go to the second uh, interview airline that I interviewed with, I went to the third one, obviously, to uh, uh, be professional, not turn them down. I, I believe they deserved, you know, they, they took the opportunity to call me and invite me in. I, I, I believed I, sh- I owed them at least to show up and hear what they had to say, mm-hmm. uh, which I was very impressed there, too. It's just it comes for me. My choice came down to bases uh, because of the pay was a lot of uh, it was pretty much the same at all three. Um, and they had a lot of uncommutable bases. So. So you ended up I ended up choosing my airline at Sandpiper Regional. A very, very good That's airline, right. I must say. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to sound biased here, but <laughs> it was an excellent, excellent yeah. choice, my friend. Excellent choice. And because you made that yeah. choice, you and I got the opportunity to meet up and to go fly together. Um, but let's back up just a little bit. So you, you got selected there, you accepted their offer, and they gave you a class date which is usually how these things work. You get a class date, you just show up your first day of class, you do what's called indoctrination, where you spend a couple of days reviewing what they call their flight manual, uh, basically the company operations, the company's procedures, how you do things, uh, regulations. Now, when you're out there flying at a either a Part 141 or Part 61 flight school, you know, you're following the letter of the law out of what they call the Federal Aviation Regulation or the FAR AIM, right? This is our, this is our aviation Bible, uh, if you would. And so all the regs are there. What's mm-hmm. required for VFR flight versus IFR flight? That's visual flight rules versus instrument flight rules. Uh, what's required for you to remain current? Uh, how do you get a pilot's license? What's required? How, how often is that needing to be renewed? Um, or a medical or what have you, you know, so currency, it's all there in this regulation. When you get put onto a, an airline carrier, that far aim is no longer what is your aviation Bible. What your aviation Bible is are your flight manuals for that company, because the FAA representative that signed the bottom of that book on the first page that says this is the approved by the Federal Aviation Regulation, and therefore the rules in this book are your far aim. So the regulations there are usually the same or more stringent than the Federal Aviation Regulation general book, Title 14. So you had to learn... All this, this is what Indoc is all about. You get to hear stories about what happens on the line and, and you get to hear all these you know, scenarios that you can expect. And you really had a leg up because 
if I'm understanding you correctly, you actually studied these very topics when you were studying your aviation sciences degree at Emory-Riddle. So coming into this is really, you're just repeating and refreshing what you were already knowledgeable about. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, obviously, depending on what uh, airframe you're assigned and everything, uh, it, it kind of goes down a different trail uh, from there once you're done with over the general uh, requirements that you were kind of just discussing with the, the company's manual. Then it branches off into aircraft specifics. Uh, but uh, as you and many other uh, pilots know, uh, jet transport systems, they're very similar. Uh, 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 as far as uh, just kind of the basic systems that we can expect to have on a, a jet transport uh, airliner. Um, and uh, so, yeah, uh, studying a, a lot of that stuff in college uh, definitely gave me a general overview uh, when I went into, uh, you know, the, the in-doc class, you know, 14 stages in a turbine engine wasn't exactly foreign information to me, uh, where I'm sure some people in class, you know, the standard flight instructor, from the local FBOs may not have known that. Uh, not not that they did any uh, you know any uh, worse in training. Everybody made it through. Everybody helps everybody. It's definitely a buddy buddy program. It's a crew environment from day one. That's for sure. Yeah. And what were some of the biggest challenges that you can remember from that initial your first airline ground school? <laughs> so ground school um, was pretty straightforward. I would say that that um, uh, Sandpiper has some of the best training uh, that I, I know of uh, uh, around here. They're, they're very, very good. When I got to simulator training, my, the hardest thing was remembering to slow down to 250 at 10. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, cruising around at 100 knots in a Cessna, man, you, you, you tend to forget about speed. Um, uh, and that burned me in a couple lessons uh, uh, in the beginning, uh, just the, the, the pace of everything. Luckily, I had a lot of instrument experience teaching a lot of instrument pilots and CFIIs, uh, so that wasn't too hard uh, as far as because everything, as you know, in, avi in airline business is all instruments. Uh, but yeah, my biggest thing was the the pace of the of the jet. Those things go fast, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you're not alone. Um, and it's not just the pace. Uh, you know, as someone who was involved in the training department for many years uh, for Sandpiper, I can tell you that those F-16 and F-18 drivers that would retire from the military service and then come over to a regional airline, they too would forget to slow down to 250 knots below 10. Because uh, yeah. they're like, speed limit, what's that? <laughs> this is not yep. something they're used yeah. to. And you had to remind them, That's even right. out on the line, you know, you're like, hey, uh, you're approaching 10. Yeah. You're approaching check 10, speed. Check, check speed. <laughs> yeah. What about, what, oh yeah, yeah. All that shit. Yeah. Right. So then they slow down. You know. <laughs> like, oh crap. Yeah. You know, so yeah, uh, you're not the only one uh, coming from GA. Also those guys from the military have the same uh, scenario. So it's a common, common issue. So, you know, you yeah. went through your first week of what we call IOE. So when you, when you complete your simulator training, you are a type rated licensed pilot meaning the FAA is giving mm -hmm. you their blessing. You are good to go. You are qualified in the aircraft. And the first time you actually manipulate the controls of an actual aircraft could potentially be on your very first flight with your Czech airmen with paying passengers in the back, a flight attendant that's 
giving you attitude for whatever reason because they know you're new <laughs> and they're like oh we are new yeah. you know right you remember that yeah, yeah. so you look like you're 12 <laughs> exactly you know so how did how did you feel on that very first leg was it uh kind oh, of a, man. a blur or did you actually take a breath and try to sink it all in and experience it because i've heard both yeah, yeah, man. Uh, it, it was exciting. I remember calling my wife after, uh, you know, I landed and I just couldn't, yeah, I just couldn't stop explaining to her how amazing it was. Uh, we first got in the airplane, uh, uh, the Czech airman, told, I was just kind of sitting there and the Czech airman told me, he's like, come on, man, start your flow. Like, we got to get going because, you know, you got to get the airplane off the gate. Even when you're doing IOE, you still got to get off on time. Uh is if you can help it, you know, if you can do your best to get off on time, you got to get off on time. Uh, so that was my first little, come on, man, get into, get in the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then heading on out, uh, wasn't too many issues up until, uh, we rotated uh, and, and I was pilot monitoring and he, the captain called for uh, gear up. I just was sitting there, man. I thought it was so cool. And, uh, he looks at me and goes, gear up, man. <laughs> I had to swing <laughs> the gear, but, uh, yeah, it was kind of like a little, uh, frozen moment where i was like wow this is really happening yeah uh it's something that a lot of us i'm sure a lot of the people listening that's a moment man you'll never forget Uh, your first solo and for me the the second most important moment was the first time i ever flew a jet yeah so that that initial operating experience usually the first couple legs you are just hanging on by the tail i mean you're you're so far behind the aircraft and the check airmen know this this is this is their job. This is why they're Czech airmen. They they enjoy bringing new people up to speed and you know bringing them up to where they need to be to be safe operators out there on the line when they're flying with you know a, a captain or a first officer if they're an upgrading captain whatever the experience is. And you know those memories really are ingrained. You never really forget your first manipulation of the controls of a new type of airplane. And, you know, I'm really glad to hear that you've had a lot of positive experiences throughout your career. Well, you had your first trip, you did your four days and over at Sandpiper, I think you had to have a minimum of how many hours? Do you remember what it was? Is it 20? I think it was 25 at the time. Yeah. Yeah, 20 or 25. Yeah. Yeah. Minimum 25. So average 25. And I think of those 25s, at least at the time, uh, you had to have a minimum of eight hours as pilot monitoring. So pilot monitoring duties are, you know, there's a pilot that flies the aircraft, doesn't matter what seat they're in. And then there's a pilot that handles the radio calls, handles manipulating um, altitude alerters and whatnot when the flying pilot is hand flying. When the autopilot is coupled, uh, I often tell people it's kind of like cruise control. Your car doesn't drive by itself. And nowadays we have Teslas, I know, but your car doesn't drive by yourself with regular <laughs> cruise control. You still have to manipulate the buttons to make it speed up and slow down. And you know, potentially you still have to, to manipulate the steering wheel and whatnot, but you're still telling it what to do. It's just helping you out by doing certain things automatically, or at least doing things the way you've set it up to do them. And you know, that's the funny thing about airplanes. They're computer programs that do what you tell it to do. So oftentimes as aviators, we often sometimes even hear ourselves going, okay, what's it doing? And that it's doing what you, it's doing what you told it to do. (laughs) (laughs) You really just need to figure out what you did wrong. So, but here you are, 
uh, your second trip of IOE, you get in the cockpit, and here's this this uh, captain who, you know, comes off and says, "Hey, my name's Tony. I'm your captain. What's going on? Do you remember that experience? What was that like for you?" I do, man. Yeah, yeah, very vividly. Uh, I actually ran into you in the terminal uh, before the flight. You're just kind of walking by it. I don't know how we kind of linked. I, you know, you might have texted me. I'm trying to remember how how we got linked up. But I we actually did. got linked up. We were both there. Yeah. yeah. So we were both there a little bit before the flight, anyway. So we actually got together and just kind of get to know each other, talked about our game plan, and then we we eventually walked to the airplane together. Um, but yeah, man, that was that was a great trip great experience uh you talk about getting up to speed by then you know the first couple legs i was still a little slow but by the end of that trip uh i didn't feel like i was hanging on to the tail as much although as you know the first hundred hours you're still even hanging on by the tail sometimes yeah (laughs) you know i i often tell people it takes about 300 hours in a particular airplane no matter how many hours you have behind you uh for you to kind of get comfortable in that seat uh, you know, to figure exactly. out where the cup holder is and the pen holder and, and your muscle memory <laughs> for your, for your hands, you know, do you turn the, the, this switch on with your left hand or right hand or, you know, how's my flow working? Yeah. So it takes about 300 hours. I know that sounds like a lot, but I mean, anybody can do it after 10, 15 hours of flight time. I mean, anybody can kind of, they've studied, they learned it, but it's not until about, yeah. I think an average of 300 hours where you kind of really get into the point where you don't really have to think too hard about it. Your, your muscle memory is spot on man. now there. Um, so I know a hundred hours, that's great. That's usually about a year, year and a half, but I think, I think it takes about three to four years, um, of flying a particular aircraft, going through the seasons, going through different weather and bases. And maybe if you're lucky and people, you know, when I say this, they're like, what do you mean lucky? If you're lucky, you've been through a few emergencies or, or non-normal procedures in that aircraft. Hopefully yeah. you've done that while you're in the right seat so that you have someone much more experienced in the left seat that's helping both guide and coach to make sure that it's getting done. I mean, the simulator trains you how to do the basics, the single engine procedures, yeah. the engine outs, the single engine approaches, those V1 cuts that everybody loves. You know, that's great, but that's only maybe even two or three percent of what actually could go wrong because that emergency procedures mm-hmm. manual is, you know, super thick and you're not gonna memorize the whole thing. So how to go through those flows, hopefully you've done that before with somebody else. I'd rather have a pilot that's been through five emergencies in the past. Yeah. Than a pilot that says, Well, I, I haven't really gone through anything because I've been lucky. Yeah. Um, so with that said, now I'm curious how you're going to set this up. Have you had any emergencies Uh in the airplane? (laughs) Yeah. So, um, not that as you're familiar with, as you've flown the airplane that I've uh, flown, uh, bleed leaks are a pretty popular item. Mm. Um, not something you necessarily want to have, not, not too terribly horrible. Uh, but not necessarily something you want to have. I've had two of those, both from the right seat. Um, and then one other time we had a, uh, a pack deferred, which for the people listening that don't know what that is, um, on our specific airplane, we have, uh, two pack systems, which essentially pressurize the airplane, provide air, uh, for the ventilation system. 
uh, as well as to the uh, the gas vents for the, the passengers and what have you. Um, but essentially, supplies air for the whole airplane. It also keeps us cool. Um, and one was deferred, uh, and then the other one on the climb up, we watched our cabin altitude just climb up with us as we climbed up, which it's not supposed to do that. Mm. Um, and uh, so we were not pressurizing. We got about through 10,000 feet, um, and it had gotten to about... Mm, 9,000 on the cabin altitude, uh, or excuse me, we're about 18,000 feet. We were about 9,000 to 9,500 on the cabin altitude. Obviously, it was not pressurizing. So uh, very quickly, we just descended, headed back to uh, Miami. Uh, Captain at the time, again, this was also from the right seat. He chose, uh, instead of landing overweight, we just went in a holding pattern extremely low with our gear out, burned all the fuel, and, and landed the aircraft safely. Uh, that kind of was up for debate. Everybody I talked to, I kind of asked, what would you have done? Oh, I would have just declared emergency and landed overweight. Or in our situation, we didn't really, we were just flying around like a Cessna. We didn't consider that an emergency situation. That was our kind of team decision there. Just went in a hold and, and, uh, burned off that gas, got below our max landing weight, landed the airplane, no issues from there. We just had some upset passengers that we didn't get them to, you know, wherever we were going. Right. Um, but believe it or not, when that kind of stuff happens, and you may be familiar with this too, passengers are very understanding. If you make a PA, either if you have time in the air, if you don't have time, once you get on the ground, safely parked at the gate, explain what happened, you'd be surprised how many people thank you. Yeah. Um, even for the most minor things, because they a lot of times they don't know e- either way uh, how, how severe it was. Lucky for me, those three items uh, weren't too severe uh, as far as what I've heard some other people go through. Yeah. Well, you know, you've, you've, sounds like you've had a little bit of experience here. And the nice thing about that is, you know, you, you were able to work through the system. You had a, a, another pilot in the cockpit that kind of guided, you know, how the decision-making process was going to go. And now you've got a little bit of experience behind your belt with emergency situations that when it's your turn to make those command decisions from the left seat, you kind of know, you kind of learn from both the people that you want to emulate and you also learn from the people that you absolutely want to not make the same choices or use the same phraseology that they did. You learn from the the good captains and the bad captains, basically, is what I'm saying. Um, So having those couple experiences, you know, in the first couple years that you were out on the line is actually great. That, That gives you a baseline of how to handle things. Um, you know, you, you said that you held and burned some fuel with the gear down and that's, Hey, why land? And it's not an emergency. You, you never exceed yeah. the limitation. Why, nope. why put yourself through a land immediately and, and land the airplane overweight? And now it's going to need an inspection and you got to land at less than three yeah. feet per minute. And now your other airplanes might have to get out of the way. And right. there's a lot that goes into emergency. <laughs> right. Not, not that declaring an emergency for something like that is not a good idea. I mean, you got to do whatever you got to do. Exactly. To feel comfortable. But, you know, I, I would have probably done the same thing. You reminded me a story of uh, one time I was flying out of O'Hare. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but, um, you know, it was one of those days where it's O'Hare it's uh, summertime at night, thunderstorms all over South Bend, and I, I forget where we were going. <laughs> Not any, I think it was even, might have been Dayton, and uh, so yeah. a relatively short flight. The routing is, you know, you go southbound for a little while and then hang a left turn, go east and land in Dayton, no big deal. Well, the weather was really bad, and here I was, yeah. uh, an FO, flying for Sandpiper, 
with a pretty cool guy in the left seat. And we are taxiing out at O'Hare and the long line, the conga line was probably 20 or 25 airplanes deep. And you've experienced this, I'm sure. Um, so here we are and they go into a ground stop and nothing's going southbound because of weather. So they give us a reroute. Well, the reroute had us flying a little bit west, then south towards St. Louis, then east towards uh, southern Ohio, and then a left turn to go north again to, to fly into Dathan. So it added a good 200 to 250 miles to our flight plan. So obviously, we were like, we don't have the gas for this, right? So we contacted dispatch. They agreed. So we went back to the gate, got more fuel, made regular PAs to the passengers, explaining the weather, explaining what's going on. And you opened up that uh, very nicely, that the quality of the address that you give to the passengers absolutely makes a difference. Um, when I was sitting in the left seat at Sandpiper, I would try not to use words like turbulence or, um, you know, negative, just negative connotation words. I'd say, well, it's going to be some bumpy air up ahead. It might get pretty bad, but you know, we're going to do our best to find that smooth air for you. You know, we're going to stay far away from the weather. I don't say we're going to, we're going to avoid the thunderstorms. Oh, thunderstorms you know so how you how yeah, you make that yeah. address it absolutely makes a difference well the captain did a wonderful job in the scenario that that i'm recalling and so the people were cool with it you know like okay well we'll go back get more fuel and because i want to go you know so by the time yeah. we got the fuel we got back in line and by the time we were ready to take off we we literally took off i think it was uh, runway 22 left out of o'hare get up to about 5,000 feet, and they say, all right, you're cleared direct to Dayton. And we're like, uh, no, we, we, <laughs> we're about uh, 2,000 pounds over <laughs> max landing weight. There's no way we can do that. We need to, we need to stay on course. Uh, additionally, uh, they're like, well, okay, well, you know, as, as previously filed. So then we asked, well, can we maintain 9,000 feet? And they said, are you sure? And we're like, yeah, we want, we want, instead of leveling off at whatever it was supposed to be, 19,000 feet, we want 9,000 feet. So at 250 mm-hmm. knots or just below, with the gear down and full airplane, full of passengers, here we are flying along. And the captain made a PA saying, you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as you can tell, we are much lower. And uh, the noise you're hearing back there is because we've elected to leave the landing gear down. And the reason we're doing this is because after going back to the gate, getting the fuel, getting rerouted, ATC has indicated that the weather has moved on and they want to give us direct to the airport. But because the aircraft is not certified to land with this much fuel on board, we have to burn off the fuel before we land. And we have two ways of doing that. We can either fly to the airport and hold for approximately an hour to burn off the fuel to have the legal maximum weight that we can have to land, or we can fly lower, fly slower with the gear out that produces more drag. And unfortunately, it's a little uncomfortable because it is going to be a little noisier. So unless anyone has uh, is opposing this idea, uh, this is what we're going to do because we want to get you to your destination as soon as possible. And like you said, because the captain made such an eloquent PA explaining the situation, not making it all dramatic, and keeping a calm voice throughout, the passengers all thanked him on the way out. Saying, thanks, you know, captain, that was great. Thank you, thank you for not having yeah. us hold for an hour. 
you know, and it was just one of those yeah. things, you know, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. People associate movement with progress too. If they see they're just sitting over the ground in the same spot in a circle, they're going to get a little antsy. Yeah. <laughs> so I always time my taxis too, even sometimes if I see there's three airplanes waiting, I'll slow it down a little bit. They associate rolling movement with progress. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but real quick, Tony, before uh, we move on uh, off this topic, I just want to, you asked about my emergency situations. Uh, I'm sure you've had uh, some yourself, but I couldn't stress to the new guys that are listening uh, how important it is to listen to other people's stories too, because you can learn just from not, even if you don't have any experiences yourself, you can learn by reading accident reports uh, and not necessarily the worst possible scenarios, even small things like a passenger miscount. How did you handle it, Captain? Well, I did this. Ask questions, listen to stories, uh, read accident reports. Why did they make that decision? Um, you know, just be an open book uh, if you're coming up new in the aviation industry and you'll figure that out as you as you go with your trading. Um, um, but uh, yeah, I couldn't stress that more. Uh, I've always tried to be an open book when it comes to opinions, how certain captains would handle things. And it's really helped me and my transition to the left seat for sure. Yeah. You know, Adam, you really have hit the nail on the head with this one. And to all the listeners out there, if you don't already follow the website, avherald.com, talking about you know, are you really going to sit there and read an FAA accident report that could be hundreds of pages long? Probably not. Um, yeah. It's very dry material. However, reading about how flight crews have handled instances in the past, like you said, is absolutely crucial to help you make better decisions in the future. I, too, uh, I'm a talker. I get in the airplane. If we run out of things to say, it's like, hey, can you tell me a time when, you know, you handle the situation? That grew into, hey, you should probably do a podcast. You got a lot of great stories. So, I mean, you never yeah. really know <laughs> yeah. how, right how this yeah. kind of thing develops. But if you look at the Aviation Herald website, that's uh, avherald.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. Every day, uh, he puts up all the incidents or accidents that are reported around the world. And all you have to do is click on wow, them. Yeah. Like just from today, uh, there were three incidences and two accidents that he reported on. Uh, one of them was a FedEx MD-11 uh, near Great Falls on March 15th, 2020, had a battery discharge alert. And he talks about it. He gives you the information, yeah. uh, what the Canadian TSB reported, and what they found. Uh, it was a defective shunt in the battery charging circuits. So all this yeah. knowledge is absolutely crucial if you want to be in this industry for a really long time and you want to be able to handle situations. And plus, it just makes you a stronger pilot, I think. You know? Yeah, absolutely. You've been a captain now since back in December. And, you know, already holding a line. Things were looking really good. I mean, you were oh, looking man. at within two years being through the flow through agreement at Sandpiper, you were looking at being over at the legacy carrier. And now this, I mean, has, yeah. how are you feeling about it? Are, is it getting you down at all or are you kind of taking it in stride? You know, I've, I've, since I've been hired, it's, uh, let me kind of track back to just to say that my timing, timing's everything. Going back to when we were talking about seniority, timing's everything uh, in this industry. You've probably talked about it on your podcast before. Um, 
my timing and not to, to make others feel down about their timing, but my timing was excellent. I ha- have been telling a lot of the pilots that I fly with. I, of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, downer talk in the aviation industry. Sometimes, you know, the company does this or, or this and that. And, you know, I, I got told I was going to flow at this time and then it ended up happening eight years later where me, everything has always seemed to, to fall into place. Uh, like you said, I, 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 upgraded and I had a line immediately. That's unheard of. That's been unheard of for the last decade. Um, guys were just hoping to get an upgrade, uh, you know, a few years ago. Yeah. Um, now, and here I am getting the upgrade in the senior base that I want and holding a line there. I mean, that's, it's simply unheard of. And I've always joked with the other guy, uh, with a lot of the guys I fly with, when is the bad thing coming? And I would knock on the the glare shield, you know, knock on wood, mm-hmm. you know, I, nothing bad has happened to me yet. I know it's coming. I'm like, it's going to come. And unfortunately with this, uh, COVID-19, man, it just put a, a whole showstopper on everybody's career, not just mine. Um, I'm staying pretty, pretty positive about it. Um, you got to look at it at this point, it comes down to just, man, like, I just hope everybody can keep their job. If you can fly an airplane and get paid to do it, we're doing all right. Uh, that's kind of the, the mindset I'm taking out of. Of course, I want career progression and I know it's going to come. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we just need to get through this and battle it and uh, and get the, you know, the airline industry and the economy back up and running as quickly as possible. Uh, as soon as we're done dealing with this, it, it will be temporary. America and the world has always you know, succeeded in the end if, 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 if history, uh, proves itself to be right. Yeah. So yeah, man, long story short, I'm trying to stay positive about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, at this point, I mean, what else can we do? You know, just play it day by day yeah. and kind of react. I mean, there's talk right now with, uh, shutting down domestic air travel for a period of time. I don't think that's going to happen. I think, uh, screening procedures yeah. will be more popular. Uh, because there are people that need to get back and forth uh, for business and, or what have you. Or, or we're we're a mobile society, especially in this country. It's a yeah, very, man. you know, it's, it's a very large country uh, in terms of square mileage, yeah. and you know, it's important to be able to get around. So let's see what the future holds. Uh, at this point, I'd just like exactly. to ask you a, a couple more questions. Um, you know, many professional aviators have learned firsthand how very difficult it can be to juggle the conflicting demands between their personal life and their professional lives. What do you believe is the secret in balancing the demands of family life and an aviation schedule? Uh, well, golden rule, man, family always comes first, no matter what. Uh, aviation is definitely, uh, my love, but in my life, um, uh, I've always chose to put my family first. Some people choose to pick up overtime. I personally, I choose not to, I choose to have maximum time off at home, but not that, that those people, you know, are wrong. Some of those people, they have four kids or what have you that they have to, to fund. I mean, you gotta, you gotta keep your family eating. Um, so that's their way of showing their family love or what have you, but uh, long story short, uh, always try to put your family first, um, because they're your unit, man. When you're gone, they're, they're the ones keeping the show going. Uh, uh, my wife's kind of like the CEO of the house, you know, she keeps the, the place running, whether I'm here or not here. Um, so that's definitely uh, my biggest rule. Anytime I make any decision, whether it's a base transfer, an upgrade decision, when I'm going to choose my vacation, I always go to my wife first and I say, what do you think about this? 
uh, almost, she's almost like my, my FO or she's the captain actually. And I'm the FO. <laughs> there you go. And, uh, I say, what do you think about this captain? Uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's worked out great for us so far. Um, um, but yeah, number one rule, man, put your family first. And that's in any industry that can be translated to anything. Yeah, for sure. No. And you're being in the cockpit now, both seats, uh, at your current carrier there at sandpiper uh, what has been one of the things that i hate to call it a pet peeve but let's just say one of the things that you see the other pilot do regardless of seat that kind of irks you a little bit and you wish like ah this is like this is something that like for example you're flying along with a guy and this guy every time you fly with him he opens up a can of tuna with crackers and he's eating tuna and crackers in the cockpit <laughs> stinking up the place I mean, we all know this guy right and yeah. you're like dude really yeah this is you know or sardines or something like that. And what is it your what is your thing that you just feel like ah just drives you nuts um yeah i i mean uh, that there's a lot of, you know, different kinds of captains out there. Uh, uh, if I remember flying with you correctly, you were a pretty laid back guy. I'm kind of the same way. Um, there's not a whole lot that bothers me up there. Um, you know, if guys want to talk through what they're doing out loud, that's fine with me. If guys are kind of quiet, sometimes I got to, you know, get them to talk even. Uh, I don't mind doing that either. Uh, this is referring to my experience in the left seat. Now, uh, if I had to pinpoint one thing, um, it'd probably be like, kind of like, it's kind of like jump seat etiquette, the unwritten rules of what you say and what you don't say. Mm -hmm. Um, it kind of comes down to, uh, you know, when the other person's hand flying or your hand flying and the other person's monitoring, it's kind of that threshold of respect that we have for each other. Uh, and, and I know a lot of people listening have probably gone through this, uh, where, Yes, you're, you've got the other guy's back. You need to watch him, you know, but if somebody's off plus or minus three knots or something, are you going to say something? And, or, or, you know, when, what's your threshold? You know, is it 15 knots that you're off that you're going to say something? That's a little push. And it depends on what environment you're in, you know, the terminal mm -hmm. approach or what have you. Uh, but yeah, guys talking me through my flying, uh, it sometimes irks me a little bit, especially now that I'm in the left seat and not that, that I do not, I totally make it known to my crew members that I am open to any input and you're not going to hurt my feelings. Uh, but you know, when we're off three knots or something like that, sometimes it, it, it'll bother me, but it's nothing I ever say or bring up just personally, uh, there's not a lot that bothers me. So yeah. that's just kind of one of the small things. Just that micromanaging you know? that happens sometimes, regardless yeah, whether yeah. it's the captain, because I see that now and, and I saw it then, and regardless of what seat I was in or what seat I'm in now, yeah. I see that you fly with, I'm over at Legacy when you fly with a captain that, you know, they've flown with you a couple legs. You know, if it's the first leg, I can understand. They don't really know who they're flying exactly. with. But after I can demonstrate to you that, hey, I can fly the airplane, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm the world's most okayest pilot over here. Okay. It'll get done. Yeah. And <laughs> you and me both. You know, and so we're okay. You know, we're good. And then, but even after yeah. they see that initial uh, flight together, they're still trying to just micromanage everything. And it's like they're reaching up and it's like, it's your leg to fly but their hands are on the controls more than yours because they're like oh, i want to slow you down a bit yeah it's like well hey man do you want the gear sure. it's like yeah like, I was well just no i didn't say it but didn't sure, call yeah. for it yet thanks <laughs> yeah. you know exactly exactly yeah. so yeah i can totally yeah. understand so it's in it too it, there's 
Yeah, there's a fine line too between like safety. Like I am, because I don't want to come across now on this podcast as like somebody that doesn't like input. Because I totally for input. No, I, I totally I get it. Yeah, I mean, maybe you have to be book. there to understand. But yeah, I get you it. know yeah. how it is. Yeah. And, and and a lot of people listening, I'm sure, know too that there's just those small little things sometimes that people say regarding your flying. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, come on, man, we're all here. We've all a lot of us have thousands of hours of experience. It's like, right. And you and I have known each other for a little bit higher. You and I have known each other for quite some time. So if you and I fly together and we like give each other shit and be like, you know, you know, that's fine. That's fine. But yeah. you know, if uh, if you're flying with somebody else that you don't know, and now they're micromanaging every little thing you say and or do, and or they're trying to, you know constantly constantly pushing mm-hmm. pushing that button like no you're not doing it right no you're, you're not and regardless i mean yeah. it gets very frustrating you just want to turn to the guy and just, you know just, yeah. just chill yeah. out <laughs> <laughs> yeah so oh thank you for that yeah. I, I do appreciate that um one yeah. one of the questions i like to ask is you know if you can go back in time just for a moment and whisper in your your younger ear what would you tell yourself Maybe like you're making the right choice um, because back when I started, I, I always tell people it wasn't really until all the way up to my commercial rating even where I like truly like was like, OK, I guess. Yeah, I love this. I like doing this. Um, I, I had some hardships, man, going going up through my private pilot. I failed my written exam right off the bat. I was like, what a showstopper that was mentally. Um, here I am in high school, haven't quite got good study habits down yet. You know, like most high schoolers, mm-hmm. um, didn't have a whole lot of guidance from the flight school. Uh, as it was part 61, it was kind of just, you show up and you go, what do you want to do today, man? Uh, it was kind of one of those programs and, uh, not to belittle it at all, but that was kind of like a, a depressing moment for me. It was like, man, should I just give up? Should I go do something else? Uh, and then instrument. Uh, uh, and I'm not afraid to miss this either. I, I filled my oral for instrument two times in a row mm-hmm. before. And, and, and that was like, I mean, I went home in tears the second time, man. I, I mean, first time even too, uh, I was like, how I, I called my dad. I'm like, how am I supposed to be an airline pilot if I can't even get past this second stage of flight training? Like I have a billion more stages to go, as you know, and, and a lot of people listening, going through flight training, there's so many steps. It's like, if you can't even get for the first two, what the heck are you even doing? Uh, so, yeah, man, if I had to go back and tell myself, I'd, I'd just tell myself, don't sweat it. Stick with it. These habits and, and study habits, these techniques, everything just falls into place eventually. Some slower than others, some in different paces than others. Some might be in, uh, better in a crew environment than they are in a single pilot environment earlier than others. Mm-hmm. It, it, it all eventually falls into place. It's pretty rare that I fought, that I talked to guys that, you know, didn't at least have one hiccup on their way up to their, you know, their dream job. I tell myself though, to stick with it and stay positive always because it's going to work out. All of us have had those kind of experiences. You know, um, I had, I had a tough yeah. time with my CFI initial. I thought, Oh, that's it. No one's going to yeah. hire me because it's I got a, tough a one. I, I got a, I got a pink slip because I said something stupid. I just, I said something stupid yeah. to the designated examiner uh, when I was supposed to be training him, uh, he was, you know, that's what they're doing is seeing how you train your student to sign you off. And mm-hmm. at the end of the ride, three hours into this check ride, at the end of the ride, I had one maneuver to take 
and then go back to the airport to be done. And I said something that was just wrong. And he's like, what? And so I said it again. And he's like, what? And I'm like, he said, who told you that? Like, that's the way I've been taught. That's my instructor. And once we landed, I was like, oh, crap. I completely said that wrong. And I realized what I had done. And I explained that to him. And the next couple days later, you know, I came back. I did some flight training with my instructor. And you know what? I, I still have had a very wonderful career. You know, it, these things yeah. happen. And it's, I'm thank you for sharing that because a lot of young aviators, yeah, they, they freak out. They're so nervous. They're in the simulator at their first yeah. job and they're just sweating bullets. And it's like, you don't need to, you don't it need is, to. Man, it's nerve wracking, you know, but it yeah, also, and, it also is yeah, a test exactly. to see how you do under pressure too. Right. Yeah, exactly. And this goes back to our point talking about handling emergencies, you know, you would be surprised just asking questions, hearing stories. And, and that, that was my biggest thing in overcoming. I haven't failed a check ride since that instrument oral. Um, I haven't failed anything since then. And, and I, I have to say that the number one best piece of advice that I got was go observe other people. When I went and did that, I backseated other flights. I sat in oral rooms and listened to other people's exams and lessons. And just from when you're sitting from an outside perspective looking in, it is amazing what how much more you can learn and master your craft. And that again translates into any field. If if you're if you're watching from the outside in, man, you can pick up on a whole lot more. Uh, and I've taken that with me. Uh, when I'm at airline training, man, I'm talking to everybody. Hey, man, what what did you get asked? Uh, if hey, man, if you were in this scenario, what would you do? And it's helped me be successful out there too, uh, at the training center. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. You know, that it's part of marketing yourself. It's part of networking with other pilots. You know, you, as a commuter, I was a commuter for 13 years. And in that time I was sitting in jump seats in the cockpit observing, like you mentioned. And I really do think that that shaped the way I operate and it made me a better pilot. It made me more professional. Uh, I dare even say it helped mature me into the aviator that I am today, just simply from observing yeah. how other people operate. Um, and, and kind of really the lesson I learned from all of it over the years, and I'm still learning and still developing is we're all the same. We're all, we're all just doing yeah. our best out there to kind of follow our passions and our dreams and, and fly the airplane the best we can. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter wh- where you are, legacy carrier, uh, flying a, you know, a, a Cessna 410, a small cargo company, it doesn't matter. You're, you're all going after the same goal, and that's to achieve yeah. a career in this passionate, beautiful love affair we have with aviation. And I thank you for sharing that with us. I wanted to give yeah, you a man. little bit of time today as well. You know, you and your wife have been together a very long time. Your love affair is yeah. very inspirational. I've seen all of the the social media content that you guys put out there. And I wanted you to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about your project there on YouTube. You guys have a channel together. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a small little side project. We, uh, we started once uh, I started at the airlines, uh, growing up under a, a, a pilot in the house, I always had flight benefits, but my wife obviously did not. Uh, so as soon as we got those, we said, you know, we're going to start traveling as much as possible so that before we have our child, we can we can do uh, a lot of traveling, mm-hmm. uh, what have you. We knew that was going to come to a screeching halt the second uh, you have a brand new baby in the house. 
so we had a, a challenge before we started uh, trying for our little one that we were going to go to 12 places in 12 months. And in that time, uh, I had invested some money into some camera equipment, started dabbling around with uh, Adobe Premiere Pro. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a higher end editing software um, that's available. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, we started putting together these little collaboration videos uh, and it kind of turned into what it is today. We we still, it's kind of just a little fun thing we do on the side. Don't get a whole lot of views, but yeah, if anybody wants to check it out, uh, youtube.com backslash intrepid 1080. And again, that's youtube.com backslash intrepid 1080. Got to throw my little plug in there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, just fun little travel videos. Uh, and, and too, it's, it's great too. If you're, if you want to, if you're looking to go somewhere with your family, you know, take our videos and, and look at the spots we went and go there yourself too, to, to experience them yourself. Um, it's really a great time. Yeah. Yeah, I I really enjoyed the the Phoenix location one. Yeah, man. And yeah. Uh, and then the the baby mooning in Tahoe, very special. Very, yeah, man. Very cool. Yeah, we went to Lake Tahoe, and we were talking about like we always go to warm destinations. We like you know Hawaii and all this. Luckily, lucky for you, you get to go there all the time. I always see your running posts. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, for us, we don't make it out there as much, man. But yeah, we like you know jumping off cliffs or going hiking and stuff like that. But Obviously, with a pregnant wife, you can't do a whole lot, but we're like, snow's beautiful, too. Like, even though you can't really do a whole lot, let's go somewhere where it's snowing. So we went to Lake Tahoe in the dead of winter, man. It was beautiful. Yeah. It was, uh, it's a, uh, I guess it's like a really popular summer destination. I didn't know that. I thought it would be more popular in the winter. It used uh, to be even more popular there. in the summer um, when they started to outlaw the jet skis on the lake and all that for the wake and the erosion. Mm. That, it kind of slowed down after that, um, which the locals really yeah. do appreciate. Um, I, I grew up in the Bay area and Tahoe was my backyard playground basically yeah. uh, snowboarded there on a weekly basis all throughout college. Uh, I had some really cool snowboarding trips. Did you get a chance to get out there at all? No, unfortunately, man. Yeah. To be, again, family first, I, to be respectful, I, I, I did not do any snowboarding. I didn't want to leave my life alone. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, we, you know, we went, we did some, some nice dining. My wife loves to uh, take photos and stuff. I'm kind of like the video guy in our little intrepid, uh, uh, you know, side project. I do the YouTube and she does the Instagram. Mm -hmm. So if anybody wants to follow us on Instagram, it's intrepid 10 or excuse me, intrepid life four is our username intrepid life four. uh, cute. If anything, you just have cute pictures of a baby in your, uh, in your, in your feed. Uh, if you go and follow you know, us so right that, now, that's what we need the most. You know, we really do yeah, need man, positivity. positivity. Oh, Oh, for sure. You know, <laughs> that's what I tell everyone, man. I, my my sweet little one year old, she has no clue that the the economy's in meltdown mode right now. She's just as happy today as she was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, with that said, you know, I wish you be safe. Um, I've taken some precautions here at the house uh, because I'm still flying. Uh, most of everything that I was supposed to be doing going to the islands has been canceled, um, subject to reassignment. Yeah. Uh, or what they're calling it, uh, the legacy carrier is recovery obligation. So if they, they cancel your flights, yeah. you know, technically you're obligated to to do any kind of flying once they contact you. And you know, there's a lot of contract language there that is obscure and and creates a little bit of an issue. So we'll see what happens in the days ahead. But um, just this last week, my wife said, you know what? we're done uh, with you bringing bags into the house, wearing shoes into the house. I mean, she's like, we're clean people. I understand that. I know you're careful, but 
we just can't risk it. So when I come home, um, yeah. I, I have a table set up in the garage now and everything gets worn or unworn. Everything gets thrown in the washer. Uh, the shoes come off, they stay in the garage. My uniform, jacket, hat, pants, everything stays in the garage uh, until the next cleaning cycle or whatever, dry cleaning, or if I wash, uh, yeah. what have you. Um, and it all gets left there. If I come in late at night, I go and shower immediately. First thing I do, walk into the house, go take a shower. Everything goes into the washer. Um, and we're just being super, super careful right now because uh, this thing is, I mean, for someone like you and I, relatively healthy individuals that are athletic, that we, you know, we take care of our bodies, we have good lung capacity. I mean, it's probably not going to be a major thing um, as, you know, 96% of the rest of the world is going to survive if they get this COVID-19 illness. However, you know, let's say you and I have it, it's about a five day to up to 15 day uh, incubation period where you could be either asymptomatic or your symptoms are so minor that you could potentially even not yeah. be running a fever um, and have it. And of course, yeah. if you have it and you can transmit it. So I go to visit yeah. Nana. Next thing you know, Nana's got it. And there's the issue. The That's older right. generations, yeah. the family, you know, we all have parents. It's the one you, ones you love, man. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, you know, unfortunately, normally at least a couple times a month, we go and visit family, you know, our older relatives that live in the area. And that's all stopped. We, we don't do that until this whole thing blows over. Um, and yeah, I have my little quarantine area in the garage. Have you been taking any kind yeah. of steps at this point? Yeah, man. Luck, luckily, I haven't been out there since really this is kind of all went into meltdown mode. I essentially got back from my trip when we first started to like hear about it. I had went to the grocery store. I remember some lady was in the aisle. She's like, I can't find any hand sanitizer anywhere. I remember thinking to myself, like, why are you looking for hand sanitizer? And why can't you find it? Like, it's it's probably over in the travel section, lady. Like, that's what I was thinking. Uh, and I didn't even realize people are starting to buy up everything because they're starting to freak out about this, uh, and rightfully so. Um, so yeah, I haven't been out there yet, man, but thanks for the tips. I'm going I'm to set up a little spot in my outer room, uh, as well. And, and have my wife keep the Lysol can out there and spray it down and wash everything when I get back home. Cause oh, Lysol's gold supposedly right now. it doesn't affect. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, it is. You better believe it. It's, oh yeah. It's turning into currency. But uh, having the little one in the house, though, they say it's, it doesn't – zero to nine-year-olds actually have some pretty uh, good statistics, surprisingly, on the internet right now. But I don't want to take any chances, obviously, with the little one at home. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then, like you said, interacting with anybody else. Um, unfortunately, you and I and a lot of people listening work at the epicenter of this virus. <laughs> That's why nobody's flying right now, right. unfortunately. And as you've seen on the news, all these uh, Florida beaches that were full of spring breakers – finally have been shut down, but there's still those yeah. younger generation individuals that are still like, oh, it's not going to affect me at all. Well, okay. Mm -hmm. You know, but when you go home and go visit mom and dad or whatnot, or grandma, and it could absolutely yeah. be a disastrous consequence to that. So, and, and I had a very yeah. long conversation with uh, our friend Luca over in Northern Italy, who's been in quarantine now for 16 days. Uh, but actually longer than that because he put himself in self-quarantine much earlier. 
since this whole thing started because of uh, s- scenarios that played out. So he's been at home with his family. Thankfully, they've got a nice piece of property and, and you know, they're well stocked up and they minimize contact with anyone from the outside. And, and they're very fortunate that they can do that. But uh, from what he was telling us here on the show, that this is a very, very serious thing. And the only way to beat this right now until a, a viable vaccine is produced and, and developed and available to all the residents that, that need it the most, the only way to prevent this from getting out of hand is to just stay home, just minimize that yeah. contact, you know, because they're explaining, especially in the more densely populated areas, you can walk down the street and if uh, the guy in front of you in, uh, 45 minutes ago sneezed, and it's they're, they're micropol- they're so small. The virus is so small. It's in the atmosphere. And yeah. so now you walk by, there's no one around you. 45 minutes later, potentially you could inhale this into your lungs and come down with it. Usually it hits within uh, two to three days uh, as soon as 24 hours, but you know, it could take up to 72 hours for you to start feeling any of the initial symptoms and then from that point to the point where you know you you either get better or whatnot it could take up to 14 even even longer i read something earlier was up to 20 days so yeah you know be careful out there the the mask thing um in the previous shows we've talked about how wearing the mask uh, all you're going to do is create a, a shortage for the people that need it the most which are the frontline um employees the the nurses the doctors yeah all these people that are on the front lines in the hospitals working double triple quadruple shifts overtime not going home man my heart goes out to these people these guys oh yeah you know if they don't have the protective equipment and they get sick then what then what do we do? Yeah. So, you know, wearing a yeah. mask, hey, if you have it, wear it. Um, and if you can yeah. get one, wear it. Because yeah. now knowing what we know, what's being developed with, you know, if you live in a densely populated area, if you're in an airport, you know, th- somebody doesn't necessarily have to sneeze on you for you to be exposed. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's kind of changing the outlook now. Uh, with the mask wearing. Um, And so something is better than nothing is what they're saying now at this point. Um, And, you know, I still believe that for the most part, if you're sick, you you should be wearing a mask. Absolutely. Period. But at the same time, you should be isolating yourself and locking yourself away for the duration of the illness. So you don't spread it. So, but if you, if you can protect yourself, I don't know at work if they're, I heard that they're allowing now flight attendants to wear masks during to wear the flight. Masks, yeah, yeah, um, because we have had quite a I few. I saw that. Yeah, recently today, uh, I read that uh, an American Airlines flight attendant uh, was not only tested positive but has passed away from COVID nineteen. Oh wow! So I didn't know that. This is uh, this is starting that. to hit home very very quickly. Yeah. Uh, and being two weeks behind yeah. what Italy's progressed to, Italy now having the highest death rate in, in every other country, uh, China's being the yeah. second, you know, and Spain's right there, right behind. So, you know, hopefully this whole thing passes uh, quickly. It's going to definitely yeah, change man. the atmosphere and the outlook of the airline industry. Uh, but we're, like you said, we're going to get through it. 
if everybody does yeah. their part, we can bounce back as you know a lot quicker. If everybody does their part to to suppress this thing, absolutely. Um, yeah, I heard, I heard today. Yeah, one in one thousand in New York City uh, has it, which that might sound like a big number, but in Washington State, point two for every one thousand have it. Uh, so, I mean, that's a very significant difference. Yeah. Uh, so if you're traveling in or out of those places, they're recommending that you, even if you don't have any symptoms, just to self quarantine for 14 days, just to, to prevent that. That's where a lot of this is coming from. Yeah. Um, as we're but, talking here, yeah. there's some news that's being, uh, released, you know, Hawaii has gone into a mandatory quarantine, uh, as of uh, Thursday morning, uh, which will wow. have been, you know, a couple of days <clears> after this show comes out, but, uh, also, there's other states now uh, following suit, and Florida is actually one of those states. There are travel restrictions. If you're coming yeah. in from particular states into Florida, they're going to put you in a mandatory quarantine. Yeah, the one of the captains here at uh, Sandpiper just uh, messaged me uh, and said his plane uh, from New York to uh, Miami was met with uh, law enforcement as well as CDC official, officials. Uh, and other medical personnel, and they made everybody fill out a form on the airplane, um, uh, a CDC form, I guess, uh, regarding COVID-19. And uh, everybody in the airplane was required to do a mandatory 14-day uh, quarantine for themselves, self-quarantine. And they could be uh, met with uh, jail time or fines if they did not comply. Uh, This captain actually had to talk his way out of uh, the situation uh, because uh, he was on a positive space travel, uh, deadheading, uh, after finishing a trip. So he was a working crew member, even though he was riding the back with the rest of the uh, the folks. Um, he kind of had to talk his way out of that because, you know, he's got to go back to work. So it's kind of a gray area right now. Uh, all of this is yeah. uh, for most people. Like you said, we're hearing a lot of new terms, but uh, even the law enforcement officers that met him uh, were confused um, as to what he was explaining, he's like, I'm an essential worker. You don't understand. Like I, I just finished a trip. I, I got to go back to work in three days. And so it's kind of a gray area, man. We don't, we, I don't even think our company knows what we're going to do about that yet. Um, and, and not that they should, man, that was just put into, to, uh, to affect, uh, last night, I think, uh, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, don't quote me on that. Yeah. I actually think that was uh, earlier this morning. Yeah. Well, you know, the, it's very fluid. Yeah, yeah. So the airlines are having to adapt to this. Yeah, mm-hmm. you, you, you you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I'm getting, I, like I told you uh, before we started uh, talking today, uh, uh, it's pretty much a two email, two email a day program for me, whether it's from the union or the the the, uh, the, the company itself. I'm, I'm hearing updates, and, and unfortunately, it just keeps getting more negative instead of positive. But like you and I were just talking about, man, if everybody does their part, you know, we can, we can climb our way out of this and we'll be, we'll be better for it and, and, and all right in the end. Yeah. I learned earlier today that uh, the reason China has not had any new cases of this is because the government there was so stringent with the quarantines that they, they've covered up a lot. The media that you and I may watch here in the United States doesn't go anywhere near the reality of how they quarantine these people, but people were being detained, people were being put in in jail cells, and I even had some reports of people allegedly being shot. 
because they refused. Yeah. They refused I, to I've go into people were getting pulled out of their homes, children away from their parents, parents away from their children. And those that refused were put either in jail or worse. And, you know, that's why they've been able to contain this thing under such a short period of time. Uh, whereas in a free country, you can't really do that to people. You have to try to get them to see the light, to see the fact that the best defense we have here is to isolate each other. And unfortunately, that has huge economic consequences. So you're right. But thank yeah. you so much for uh, for sitting down with me with all this and and kind of diving of course, into man. how yeah. this affects us. You know, uh, any any few last words uh, before we kind of wrap it up here? Nah, man, nothing other than just thanks for uh, inviting me on. I I, uh, I had been listening uh, for quite a while now, and I'm just I'm honored that you you had me on. I know my story kind of probably falls in line to a lot of people's listening. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, if anybody. Uh, um, has any questions or anything, you can always reach out to me, uh, on Instagram too, and follow me. Uh, it's Adam Krause for on Instagram. I'd be more than happy to respond to anything. I'm sure, uh, Tony, you're pretty active uh, on the internet as well. Yep. Um, that, uh, um, yeah. Other than that, man, just thanks for having me on. It's, no, it's it really was, been a pleasure. It's, it it's really cool to uh, nice. link back up again, other than in LA. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Every time every time you were going on it's some like, non-rev somewhere on vacation, you, it's like, oh, I'm at the airport in LA. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm at the gate next to you. And yeah. It was like almost every single time. Yeah. And unfortunately, that was kind of bad yeah. luck for you too, because you haven't been very lucky in terms of <laughs> traveling out we're of LA. not successful in LA, man. Yeah. Unfortunately, probably right now would be a good time to go through LA, even though they're probably shutting everything down here soon who knows what's going on but yeah me and my wife were joking before i did the podcast because it uh, she's never it's funny she's never been to la and not seen aviator tony there you go there you go i'm everywhere uh, i am the night you are man <laughs> exactly you are lax somebody sent me somebody sent me a post uh 18 fare on JetBlue to florida and i was like Wow. Yeah. LA to Florida? I, no, I don't know if it was wow, LA to Florida man. or if it was New York to Florida, but it, it was like a flight to Florida. Either way, that's a good thing. 18 bucks. 18 bucks on JetBlue. I'm like, yeah. what? You know, so one last yeah. final question before we wrap it up today. Yeah. Um, I want you to think back to one person, just one, that has made the biggest impact to your success in your aviation career and in your life. Who is that person and why? And I just had like a, yeah, I just had a thousand faces go through my head when you said that. Um, probably, you know, it sounds kind of cliche because, oh, my dad's a pilot, but probably my dad, after I failed that second instrument oral, I, I was beaten as far as you can get beat into the ground uh, as far as my career goes in aviation, my pursuit of my aviation career. And I called my dad and he just basically said, Hey man, this, this is, this is AV's aviation. This is a part of the journey. This is a part of, uh, how do you get there? Um, you know, and all I kept telling myself is how can I, how can I get by this man? If, if I can't, or how can I make it to my goal? If I can't even make it through the first couple steps, uh, and he just encouraged me to stick with it. And, uh, although he didn't take, uh, a part in my flight training itself, uh, just his mentorship through the process uh, was extremely helpful along with many others. Uh, but yeah, that was a tough time in my, my aviation career. And I, I have to give it to my dad that he got me through it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very personal question, and I like to, I like to ask that of my guests uh, when they're on the show for the first time, because, you know, you hear such wonderful, wonderful examples of support and encouragement and, and all this to follow a dream. And when you find those people, yeah. you just have to celebrate them. And thank you for sharing yeah. your your mentor with us. Don't forget to check out the Intrepid YouTube page. Again, give us that uh, link again. Yeah, it's youtube.com backslash Intrepid1080. Just some fun little travel videos, give you some ideas and maybe where you might want to take your family. Awesome. Well, again, Adam, thank you so much for being on, and we look forward to uh, meeting up with you again here in the near future. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me on. Hopefully, we'll talk again soon. For sure. And ladies and gentlemen, that wraps up episode 35 of Squawk Ident. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Captain Adam Krauss for sitting down with me and discussing his journey in aviation thus far. It was a real treat to hear how his journey in aviation started and continues to develop. He has a long career ahead of him, and I look forward to speaking to him again in the future. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank the frontline workers out there. In the middle of this COVID crisis, I want to make sure that we all take a moment and thank the doctors, the nurses, the medical techs, the EMTs, the firefighters, the police officers, and all of the frontline workers. Yes, even the pilots out there and flight attendants, mechanics, gate agents, and airport operators that keep the whole system going at this time. Are you enjoying Squawk Ident? I hope you are. And we'd love to hear how we're doing. You can leave us feedback either from the website at www.aviatortony.com or you can leave us direct messages through our social media pages. On the website, you can check out episode cover art, episode archives, the pilot shop, and you can also leave us a 90-second audio message. On the socials, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Squawk Ident Podcast or Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, we sure would appreciate a good review and a like and a share. In closing, I'd like to just say thank you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe and take care of each other. Yeah.